Greetings, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me on Satiate today. I'm Sue Van Rays, functional nutritionist, food psychology specialist, author, and founder of Boulder Nutrition here in Boulder, Colorado. I also lead women's wellness and yoga retreats, both locally and internationally. Food has so much power. Power to nourish, to strengthen, and to connect us to one another. That said, it's a true rarity to find a woman today who is at peace with her plate, with how she eats, how she looks, and how she feels in her body. Satiate is here to engage in meaningful conversation about what it really means to have food and body freedom, to show up in life as who you really are, to trust yourself tracking the intelligent design of your body, and to prosper with embodied self-care in doing so. Satiate offers you functional nutrition and food psychology insights, some of my favorite special guests and experts from all over the world, and some personal insights and anecdotes that can act as salve for your soul. If you love this podcast, I would be so grateful if you head over to iTunes, subscribe, and leave a review. That way, you'll be sure to be alerted when new episodes are published and help me spread the word so that other women in need can find their way to this important conversation. Thank you so much for being here today, and I hope you enjoy today's episode of Satiate. I'm so excited to share today's special guest with you, and it is such a treat to host him on Satiate today. Dr. Andrew Hill is one of the top neurofeedback practitioners and peak performance coaches in the country. He holds a PhD in cognitive neuroscience from UCLA's Department of Psychology and works as a functional neuroscientist and biohacking coach to support brain optimization. Dr. Hill is the founder of Peak Brain Institute, host of the Head First podcast, and has lectured at UCLA for over a decade on psychology, neuroscience, and gerontology topics. If you're looking for some incredible daily practices, nutrients, eating styles, and lifestyle hacks to support you in optimal brain health and feeling your best, be sure to listen to this incredible wisdom that Dr. Hill shares with us today. great to have you on the show today and I am excited for this conversation and all of the knowledge that you can share with me and our listeners and welcome. Well thanks so much for having me nice to be here. So why don't we get started with a little bit about how you got into neuroscience. Such a huge field so dynamic and interesting and I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Yeah, thanks. Um, so neuroscience, the way that I, you know, at least the end of it that I ended up in is uh, working at sort of understanding how the brain produces the human experience. I'm a cognitive neuroscientist, so the sort of mind-brain overlap. 
And I think I was one of those kids who had to take everything apart, you know, back in the seventies and eighties. And, uh, that didn't change when I got to, um, you know, looking at people, but of course you don't want to take people apart and, and, uh, trying to figure out how this mysterious thing works was somewhat of an interesting, um, uh, topic for me for a bunch of reasons. One is that, you know, people are very, very confusing and very, very dynamic and unique. And I was sort of even seeing back, you know, 20, 30, 40, maybe 50 years ago, how different people were across each other. And it was a little confusing how some people had difficulty with focus or stress or whatever. Uh, and then I was noticing, um, I was in high school and my, uh, 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 noticing these sorts of things. And my younger brother ended up receiving a head injury uh, that was pretty significant and was in a coma for a few weeks and had this big change in cognitive status. And it sort of drove home that, you know, some of these small little changes in a mysterious uh, three pound bit of or, you know, tissue can create uh, dramatic experience changes. You know, this was an obvious you know, consciousness difference. And then after, you know, a little tiny piece of his brain uh, sort of recovered, he, he, he spent a lot of time relearning some skills and, and getting back to his normal self, which he did, but it took a few years. Um, and seeing this change ability of the system. So A, it was mysterious and we didn't know how it worked. And there was sort of a hidden, you know, thing behind our skull that was uh, poorly informed, even from a medical perspective to some extent. And then also seeing that it could change, that we could, you know, not just do the normal things of growing and development, but receive injuries that took out function significantly and then actually move through change again. So I got really focused on the idea of the brain as this dynamic um, thing that was uh, something we needed to understand. And then I ended up working in probably uh, some of the more acute psych hospitals and uh, aggressively violent environments in Massachusetts in the nineties, um, uh, you know, acute locked facility uh, places that had people at the edge of their you know, stability and always in extreme crisis. And I saw lots and lots of, um, you know, brains again, sort of falling apart and at the places where the critical resources weren't supporting them, weren't well regulated. And what I didn't see was a lot of progress. There was a lot of revolving doors. People would come into a hospital, get stabilized in a week or two, leave and come back a few months later. And it was even worse for people that were sort of in developmentally changing states, you know, children and adolescents were just coming and going into these acute psych hospitals who had difficulty with all kinds of things from trauma to anxiety, to drug abuse, to ADHD. And we didn't have a very good uh, set of resources to help people even manage, uh, sorry, even understand some of these difficulties that we call psych stuff, if you will. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, it was very frustrating, so to speak. And I ended up getting injured working in one of these uh, acute environments and I blew out some discs in my back and couldn't do the sort of hands-on work that I was doing, uh, trying to, you know, work directly with people. And I did some case management for a while, but then the hospital system, it was, it was going through lots of uh, uh, financial difficulty in the nineties, a lot of hospital insurance things were changing. So the system closed that I was working at, I couldn't just go work at another hospital because I had sort of some physical limitations at the time. And I ended up working in a, in high tech for a few years and kind of leaving neuroscience and psych and people stuff, uh, completely behind. And then after a few years, uh, I went back into, uh, working with people and I found myself working at an autism center in Providence, Rhode Island that used neurofeedback. I was sort of interested. I heard about this, mm. uh, brain-based, uh, training thing. 
but I wasn't super familiar with it. And I had worked with tons of autism and ADHD, and I worked in residential environments as well. So I had deep experience with people and I had some tech experience more recently, but I was missing that people thing. So when I went back into human services, I found a local center that did this cool brain stuff and went in there for, for an interview or an internship and walked out with a job, which was great. And uh, started working with um, somebody who became my mentor in the neurofeedback space, a guy named Dr. Larry Hirschberg, um, who has a big autism focus. Uh, his practice, I think he's closed it recently, but um, the Neurodevelopment Center is still in Providence. Uh, does see a lot of uh, uh, people that do some, some autism, but I think Larry's retired at this point or mostly. But um, I was working with spectrum people and people with ADHD and other things like that and developmental issues and seeing them change. And it was very shocking. I was seeing ADHD symptoms lift and I was seeing mm. sensory stuff for autism and seizures and migraine, seizures and obsession, and even language and eye contact things shifting sometimes with people on the spectrum, which wasn't my experience historically. You know, we, we didn't have people who were extremely, you know, OCD or PTSD or had some developmental issues or had some significant dysregulation, stress or attention. I saw those people when they were not being well served at, in crisis in, in inpatient environments. And then I was seeing them here in an outpatient coming and going kind of, you know, therapy almost context. And I'm watching them progress in a matter of weeks and months, which blew my mind. And, and we were seeing things like people moving sort of out of ADHD characteristics in a couple of months routinely. And this was not what I understood to be true about how we work with brains. And so got my attention and I worked there for a couple of years and sort of realized I had to go back to grad school and uh, long story, uh, that's how I ended up studying neuroscience, went back to UCLA and I studied essentially how neurofeedback works in the brain, as well as ways to measure attention and other aspects of executive function in the brain. Uh, I was really looking at the performance bits because I was seeing so much difficulty with attention control or executive function, if you will, in many things, not just ADHD, but in typical people who are burnt out. Uh, and there's a secondary feature in all kinds of things from depression to autistic spectrum stuff to even trauma produces an executive function dysregulation. Mm -hmm. So we can't control our behavior or our attention very well. So um, I studied how to dig into understanding how that works in the brain and then how to change it. And neurofeedback um, is sort of this process of making a, 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 an active change in the brain by gently pushing the resources around the blood flow, the electricity of the brain, and you create different resources, just like you might train the body in the gym over time, the system adapts and you get a different set of uh, resources available. And that's what we were doing in this place in Providence. And it can produce huge changes in a few months, but I had to spend about six or seven years getting a PhD, digging into the mechanisms and to figure out if I could maybe accelerate uh, a little bit of our process. Cause it's a, it's a very individualized uh, repetitive process. People who have like ADHD, for instance, or maybe a sleep issue or some migraines or something, or some PTSD might do 30, 40, 50 sessions of neurofeedback to have their um, sort of floor built under them, you know, new regulation, mm -hmm. stability, resilience. And you feel it in about three or four sessions, just like you might feel your, your new workout plan, your new yoga routine sort of kick in and start working out new resources. And then the way we do it, we, we very iterate with our coaches who help our clients sort of watch shifts in stress, sleep, and attention as foundational things, and then move those resources uh, over time. So people train for about half an hour, three times a week, but they produce these big sweeping shifts. And that's sort of the, you know, I, I went from the 
practical in the trenches into the academic and then back into the sort of clinical and functional world of applied neuroscience so that I could then bring it full circle. So sorry, long-winded answer, but that's how I got it. <laughs> no, it's so interesting. And I would love to get like for our listeners, maybe a working definition of both neuroscience or yeah, neuroscience, neurofeedback, and also QEEG or what you call brain mapping, just so we can kind of sure. move forward with that information, holding us and understanding what what exactly is happening when you talk about these brain workouts. Um, sure, sure. So a lot of the history of neurofeedback, uh, which is this process of making change by doing biofeedback on brain waves or biofeedback on blood flow, and I'll unpack that in a minute. A lot of this started out um, as a mistake or a, a serendipitous discovery in the uh, late 60s, as many scientific things do. Um, and then it evolved over the past you know, 20, 30, 50 years now into this other slightly refined set of techniques that's used all over the place. But um, brain mapping or, or EEGs, you know, measuring the brain's electricity is how it all started. So take you back to the late 60s at UCLA, there was a scientist named Dr. Barry Sturman who mm -hmm. was working with NASA to figure out um, how dangerous uh, rocket fuel was because astronauts were breathing in rocket fuel vapors and getting sick, nause nauseous and uh, dizzy and headaches and things. And so NASA said, hey, let's please experiment and figure out how dangerous this is. Now, back in the 60s, we were doing more animal research and we were exposing, at the, uh, Dr. Sturman was exposing cats to methyl hydrazine vapors. So they'd make a plexiglass little booth with a beaker of rocket fuel inside of it and put a cat inside. So we don't do that kind of human research as much, or sorry, uh, animal research as much anymore. But at the time it was sort of a destructive research looking at how, the, how toxic some things were. And what he found was he had about 32 cats in his subject pool. And he found that most of them, about three quarters of them had this perfect dose dependent curve where the increased minutes exposed to the vapor meant increased symptoms. They first started crying and stumbling and drooling and eventually had seizures and then coma and then death, this perfect linear curve. And about 40 minutes in, um, they were all having seizures. And yet eight of the cats refused to have seizures refused to show these instability events. And something like two and a half hours in, they were just starting to show some instability. And Sturman had no idea what was going on. I said, why, you know, why is, it's very clear most of the cats are acting one way, small portion acting a different way, what's going on? And then he remembered he had used those other cats in a different experiment about six months before. Wow. And that had changed their brain. And so that experiment was, he put a milk dropper, a little uh, eyedropper inside of their cheek and squirted chicken broth into their mouth. Much nicer experiment than the poisoning one. Yes. He squirted chicken <laughs> broth into their mouth whenever a certain brain wave went up. So many people who are listening probably have cats or have seen cats. If you've seen a cat lying on a windowsill watching birds, that still body and laser-like mm -hmm. focus, that's a brainwave state, a dominant body based and attention-based brainwave state called SMR, sensory motor rhythm. There's a strip of tissue that runs ear to ear that helps you control the output of your body, which is motor and the input, which is sensory. And it's integrated right there. And predators like cats make a lot of it because you wanna deeply still your body before leaping onto your prey. So you right. see a cat like holding still and focusing, that's a, a, a very, strong executive, if you will, state where you have total control over what's happening internally and externally. Now, it turns out that SMR 
or a failure, a low SMR tone, if you will, the inability to keep good SMR going is often what ADHD is. So the column cat and the windowsill and ADHD are literally the opposite phenomena. That's such a great example. Thanks. Sturman just picked a brainwave that cats make a lot of because it was obvious and he measured it moment to moment. And whenever it went up, he's rewarded it with a squirt of chicken broth. And months later, these cats were seizure resistant because SMR makes the brain stable. It helps with inhibitory tone, you pump the brakes kind of mode. So it helps with things like not being fidgety if you're an ADHD person, as well as your brain not going squirrel, grabbing stuff cognitively, as well as things like suppressing seizures as well as things like keeping you asleep if you hear noise that you don't get to wake up for. It's this, this broad inhibitory tone. So he got lucky and got these cats to do a seizure uh, effect. And that's how he discovered the, uh, the effect of SMR training. And one of his lab assistants was in medication, uncontrolled epileptic, having tens of seizures a month. And she went, um, let's uh, do something else. So they created an auditory feedback system for her and, and trained her SMR over the next year or so. And she went off all of her meds, which weren't super effective. And her seizures went away for over a year. So they were like, wait a minute. And then in the seventies, there was lots of work being done on seizures and the eighties expanded to sleep and EEG. And nowadays um, we have effective techniques for seizures, migraines, ADHD, lots of forms of anxiety, uh, brain fog. These days I'm seeing lots of post COVID brain fog and we can usually address it just like we might address a mild concussion. It looks very similar by the way, in the brain. So what we're doing when we're going after this kind of stuff, it, it, the practical, if you will, uh, uh, application of neurofeedback these days is really divided into the assessment or the goal setting of what you're going after and then going after it, making the change. So we do a fairly rigorous scientific based of evidence-based approach. There's different ways to do neurofeedback and there's different tool sets, but we stay pretty uh, conservative with the science. We don't go off into uh, magical systems. Um, so we do a map of the brain, which involves putting a cap on the head and we squirt it full of gel and you sit still. It's painless, but a little annoying to have a gelled up cap on your head. So, sorry. Um, <laughs> we measure your brain at rest for about 10 minutes, eyes closed and eyes open. And the brain does very different things under those two conditions. So that's kind of interesting. And we also uh, measure your executive function. Have you do a really boring test for about 20 minutes? And that I do apologize for. It's ridiculously tedious. The computer's <laughs> going one, two, one, one, back and forth. And the, only, the person's only job is to click the mouse when they hear one and ignore the two. But it's changing from auditory and visual and it's very boring and very slow. So what happens is people will fall over. They miss the one, they click on the two, and we're picking up things like inattention and impulsivity, but at a much more granular level than like ADHD, because we unpack, is it auditory? Is it visual? Is it short versus long-term? Is it happening in sustained ways? And we often tease out something that's much more specific than ADHD. I can't tell you the number of folks that come in with a ADHD diagnosis, so to speak, from somebody else. And you look at their brain and you either find there's an auditory processing issue and no real ADHD, but it was, an, it was a, a verbal interview that got them the ADHD mm -hmm. diagnosis, or there's a major anxiety and sleep problem fighting each other. So they're not impulsive, they're reactive. They're not inattentive, they're burnt out. And those two things are hard to distinguish sometimes. Or trauma can look like ADHD. People are brittle and reactive. So I love brain mapping or QEEG because we can measure the brain at rest. And then we get a sense of all the ways in which your brain's unusual and your attention as well, all the ways in which you're, you're unusual compared to the average person your age, basically. And the goal here isn't to say, 
why aren't you average? And look at your brain and say, why, where's the unusual stuff? That's a problem. No, you just want to help you understand your brain. So the attention testing does get some bottlenecks. We can tell if you're impulsive or if you have some specific difficulties with uh, execution of something in your, in your focus. But then the brain map doesn't tell me what is good or bad necessarily about you. It tells me what's different, how weird you are. And from there, we walk through the data and say, hey, let's build some models. This brainwave over here in this part of the brain for some people, it might operate this way. Oh, that sounds valid to you. That sounds real. Mm, cool. Do you care about that? Oh, you do. Okay. Now you have some agency. Now you have some sense of how your brain works. And it might not be a perfect you know, explanation like a doctor might give you, but it, it's, in, it's a piece where you can now try something. You have agency to go in and try to manipulate that brainwave and yeah. see if you're got your hands on something you care about. And the easy stuff to see in a brain map, the stuff that's almost almost diagnostically valid, not quite, but you can see a lot of stuff and you can make pretty good guesses from like a lot of people are all the flavors of attention stuff, stress, and a lot of sleep things. So somebody has a lot of perseveration or rumination from OCD features or PTSD. If they have some developmental trauma stuff where they're overly activated and can't relax, if they have some sensory input area stuff or some social anxiety, those things often show up in a somewhat reliable way. And then we can see uh, basically how your brain might be different. So I mentioned earlier that we do eyes closed and eyes open recording. Here's a really easy example. The visual system, which is in the back of the head, mostly, don't blame me. Uh, when you close your eyes, it shuts down a little bit. So for most people, when you close your eyes, the occipital cortex, the visual cortex, in the back of the head goes into a rest mode called alpha. This little quiescent idle, like a car in the driveway, just kind of purring along, waiting to go. And when you open your eyes, the alpha gets shut off and replaced with beta, a little accelerator being pushed on. And the tissue starts processing vision as it comes in. For some people, if the eyes are closed, you don't see the rest mode. You don't see alpha. You see a lot of beta. And that's the brain kind of like preparing to process vision just in case. And I might guess someone's kind of hypervigilant and can't let go of scanning the world. The other way around, you open your eyes and you don't block the alpha and replace it with beta. It stays kind of drifting alpha. Oh, this person's got some visual inattention. They're kind of ADD. They can't turn on the, the system rapidly enough. They're kind of like, wait, what? You know, little Bill and Ted moment for them visually or something. Um, so you can kind of predict and say, hey, your brain isn't waking up as much as average. When you open your eyes, do you feel a little inattentive? Or your brain isn't relaxing the visual system quite as well. When you close your eyes, do you feel a little hypervigilant? And of course, I've tested the attention. So if I see inattentive behavior and I see high alpha with the eyes open, I'm like, oh, there's some inattentive stuff. Or ADHD, there's a circuit on the right-hand side, uh, which is involved with supervisory attention. And in kids below 19, it's almost diagnostically valid. About 94% of kids that have classic ADHD have a high theta-beta ratio right there. And the circuit, theta is like lubrication, lets things happen automatically, beta is a gas pedal. So a lot of lubrication, you can't stop yourself from pointing your attention at whatever you whatever's in your environment. So high theta is a brain that is novelty seeking, pattern matching, creative, but has a really hard time staying in one direction and not noticing everything. So it's the classic ADHD states kind of disinhibited and wide and relies on the environment to set the mode they're in. They can't just sit and do quiet things. So if you measure the theta right there, moment to moment, this is, this is now neurofeedback, you measure it moment to moment. And whenever the theta happens to dip a little bit and the beta happens to come up, 
if you applaud the brain and we like play a game on the screen, little Pac-Man eats dots or a car races faster. The brain's like, Hey, wait, whenever my theta drops, stuff's happening. That's kind of cool. And then the theta happens to go back up. The car slows down. The brain's like, Hey, I was watching that. Where's the information. And then it happens to move the theta back down. The car speeds back up. The brain's like, Oh, okay. I think I'm connected to the world and it has no idea. This is not a musical instrument or a weird car. You're learning to drive. It thinks it's something out there. So it's trying to figure out where the control is. And the big trick is we move the goalposts. So every few seconds, we adjust what we're asking for. So over half an hour of training time, the brain might engage in little runs for 15, 10, 20 seconds here and there of the theta dipping, the beta climbing. And those are what are applauded by the software. And the brain's like, oh, okay. Interesting. The mind has no idea. The person, the first couple of times in the chair is like, this is kind of boring. What's going on guys. I don't know what my, why is my Pac-Man stopping? Yep. No worries. It's just your, uh, it's just your brain moving back and forth. But after a couple of days of it, the brain after later on that day or the next day sort of reaches for the state goes, you know, I was getting input when my theta dipped, I'm going to dip my theta right now. And, and the person's like, Ooh, I feel focused. And if a parent asks their kid to take the trash out, on day three or four after a session, when the theta happens to be down, the kid gets up and takes the trash out and I get a frantic call. I asked him one time, well, it was weird. What happened? <laughs> so the theta tone starts to become more controllable from the individual's perspective. It doesn't rob them of their creativity. They can still be a crazy athlete or video game player or fencer or do the intense thing where they're better than average with, with a theta state. You can take in more information, but the boring stuff, People who have that high theta state have a really hard time directing focus when the environment doesn't give them something to focus on, like a boring classroom or a lecture. Mm -hmm. They're in their head, they're doodling, they're at the window. They call it ADHD, but it's about direction of executive function, not the amount of executive function because under high stimulus, they're great. So with neurofeedback, you can take the ADHD person and train their control over theta so they can decide to suppress it when they have to focus in quiet environments, or they can let it rise when they want to be in their sports field or their intense art project or whatever, and it's still there to be grabbed. Or the person with OCD can turn it off when they don't feel like being obsessed or turn it on when they're in their CEO mode. So we're not about giving you that diagnostic label, but we do sort of unpack the brain from the QEG and then give people really iterative control over building out different resources as they want to. So. Wow. That is fascinating work. Thank and you. so necessary in the world today with so many different imbalances that are related to the brain and including what you were talking about with COVID, but also a lot of people with trauma, mm -hmm. you know, that are experiencing incredibly challenging symptoms when it comes to focus and brain. And it really brings me to this question, how does this model that you're working within fit into the paradigm of chemical imbalance mm. and does your system and do you have different approaches for different pain points for example depression anxiety adhd and i can kind of guess the answer but i would love to hear you know how you would speak to that a little bit sure sure um in terms of chemical imbalances i think this is one of those things that we get sucked into common uh you know zeitgeist in the 70s or 80s watching commercials on tv about antidepressants there is no such thing as a chemical imbalance, really. We've never established one ever, not once in the brain. The brain wow. is a almost infinitely tunable system. So the, the 
absolute level of anything is a little irrelevant. Maybe one example, um, Parkinson's is a mm-hmm. failure of the dopamine generating system. The, there's, um, most dopamine is, is manufactured somewhat deeper in the brain. And then when you use it for things like attention, it's, it's shuttled out to the frontal lobe. But deeper in the brain, you have something called the basal ganglia, which is, is a circuit of tissue, a little bunch of, nodule, uh, of, of little uh, motors, if you will, all linked together for movement, essentially. That's why you see a, a, a tremor in Parkinson's because mm-hmm. the, most of the dopamine system is zipping around a little circuit around a loop deep in the brain. And if that timing gets a bit off, the circuit shakes like a car that's got timing uh, off on the engine. So the dopamine system, uh, it's in the, the pars compacta of the substantia nigra, the dense part of the black stuff deep in the uh, basal ganglia. When dopamine neurons die and you produce less dopamine in your brain, you get Parkinsonian type symptoms, but you have to lose almost 80% of your dopamine in your brain before Parkinson shows up. Mm. So what does the first 80% of dopamine, is that meaningless? Was that, was that not a chemical imbalance? No, it's it, the whole brain. The brain will tune the receptors that are listening for dopamine to be more sensitive. It'll increase the amount of receptors or drop them. It'll decide to release dopamine or not. So the whole system, the signal you're listening to can be tuned around. It can be a quiet signal. It can be a loud signal. And most things in life in the brain are like that. I mean, think about it. You can hear a mosquito. You can also hear a jet engine. You're actually not hearing it the same way. When you listen to a mosquito, the cochlea in the ear becomes soft and floppy and lots of things move it. And every little sound will flutter it and all the hair cells get fired and you can pick up very quiet sounds. You walk by a jet with loud sound, the cochlea stiffens up. So it can't be moved. And all you can hear is loud sounds. This is why when you leave, leave the club after a party, you're yelling at your friends for a while because the cochlea is still stiff. It doesn't, doesn't soften mm. for, for 20, 30 minutes um, after a, a bunch of loud sound to protect you. And by the same token, if your dopamine, your serotonin, your norepinephrine, whatever is at a certain range and it's, it's varying around a certain range, it's higher or lower, doesn't matter. What does matter is the variability. Variability is life. Chaos is, chaos is life. Static is death. So if you take any neurotransmitter, any signal, any hormone in the body, and you raise it and keep it at one level, things fall apart. Cortisol is a signaling hormone. Insulin, a signaling hormone. Other things, signaling, hormone, signaling processes in the body. They're supposed to be variable. So if you raise your cortisol and keep it pegged at the high level for several days, your hippocampi, the, la- the structures in the sides of the brain that deal with learning and memory formation, those would die off very rapidly. And that's one of the main ways we get depression is lock- lack of plasticity, lack of learning ability in the brain through high levels of chronic stress. Or insulin, insulin goes up and stays up super high all the time. Guess what? Now you're a chunky American who's diabetic or pre-diabetic and mm-hmm. can't metabolize sugar and can't dispose of the energy flux coming in not because of the amount of insulin, but because of the chronically high levels. In fact, mm-hmm. kind of want the insulin to go super high when you eat a pizza or a pint of ice cream and then drop away nice and low again, chronically the next day when you aren't bathing in starch. And most of us, you know, in the West anyways, will eat too much starch and too much uh, uh, things that require glycogen and we'll fill up our liver and then spill over into our bloodstream and insulin goes crazy and goes chronically high. And now we're storing all that energy in our, around our liver as fatty liver in our muscles, fatty muscle and blood is essentially fatty blood. 
And since we have such high insulin, we're not very good at oxidizing the, the fats. And all we're doing is shoving it into storage and shoving it into storage like a guy trying to, you know, mm -hmm. shove his trash into his garage and, and slam the door behind him. It's just everything's getting too full. The system is very bad at handling uh, the lack of variability. So in the brain, that's really where most things are. If you lose the variability of the system, you, you, you get cramped up and you get anxiety. You get so to back to the brain. When you think about, and, and, and to your point about uh, different use cases or pain points for neurofeedback, mm -hmm. when you think about disorders or problems people, people struggle from, and you think of, well, neurotransmitters aren't absolute. Well, maybe the, a lot of the things we think about in terms of disorders or disabilities aren't absolute. Maybe they're not diseases. And that is true when it comes to the brain. Most things we complain about are not diseases. They're much closer to like a cramped muscle. You got, you got the resource, the natural resource. It's not well-regulated. So let me give you another example for anxiety or trauma. There's a circuit mm -hmm. for the back middle of the brain called the posterior cingulate. We have an anterior and a posterior cingulate, the front and the back. And their job is to select the focus, the one in the front, and evaluate what's happening around you and reorient you. To a broad extent, the frontal lobe is the self and the back of the brain is the outside world. So back of the brain is like evaluating what's happening and orienting you. And if you get distracted, it helps you reorient. So the back midline is the huh, watch the road kind of part of the brain or catch the Frisbee heads up, you know, it's the evaluator. And we all have one. We all need one. We use it to keep safe. We use it to you know, direct our behavior a little bit. Um, if your brain learns the world is not safe, suddenly acutely, it cramps up that resource and starts really allocating its activity uh, into high gear because the cost of missing danger is extremely high. You don't miss dangerous things more than once or twice. Game over. You can miss lovely and yummy things all day long. There's yummy and lovely things tomorrow to, to be had, but you miss the tiger twice. Mm. So the brain will bias towards latching on and this negativity bias while we get depressed and anxious because it's important not to miss that stuff. But I really consider the posterior cingulate in the case of like PTSD, when it's always firing and you're threat sensitive yeah. and ruminating and can't let go of the fear and there's nothing actively triggering it around you, that's really kind of uh, akin to how your lower back might spasm up in a car accident so you can walk away. And 10 years later, it's kind of tight, it kind of hurts, but it works. It's just not well-regulated. And so if you show someone their brain and they have a back midline that's hot in beta, or the front midline, which makes people perseverative or obsessive, hot and beta. Mm -hmm. And you say, hey, your front midline is kind of hot. People tend to get stuck in their head. Songs playing in their head, bite their nails, a little bit of OCD, a little obsessiveness. Is that you? And I feel like, oh yeah, that's me. Does that get in the way? Because you could, you could, you know, relax that cramp muscle if you want. Oh wow, yeah. Or maybe like, nope, doesn't get in the way. Oh, okay, it's not OCD. You're just a CEO. You have a steel trap mind and it's working for you. Great. So you don't sort of say from a brain map, here's the problem. You say, here's the unusual thing. Let's put it in context. But ah. if you can show someone their, their sort of experience of threat sensitivity, rumination, whatever it is, it's quite a lot of suffering. ADHD even, that's quite extreme. Mood stuff, speed of processing, you know, word finding stuff people are suffering from. When you show it on a brain map and you're like, hmm, this is your brain. Here's some plausible things. And they're like, wow, yeah, that, that stuff then what you sort of do instantly is you take people out of the realm of guilt and stigma. I mean, if I showed you a broken shoulder on an x-ray, you might be frustrated, but you wouldn't feel guilty. You wouldn't be mad at it. You wouldn't feel shit. <laughs> Good point. Shoulder. You'd be like, oh yeah, it sucks. I can be, I can be angry at it. I can be angry at the, at the situation, but I'm not going to feel guilty that I have a broken shoulder. 
but we all feel guilty. We have a sprained posterior cingulate or anterior cingulate or a social and sensory integration issue, or we're a squirrel because we can't shut down the theta. We feel that's our fault because it's not visible the same way a broken mm -hmm. bone or a sprained muscle might be, but it has the kind of regulatory context that a sprain or a, a weak muscle might have. It doesn't have a disease context often for the big things of sleep, stress, and attention, especially. Yes, there are diseases that are brain-based, but a lot of stuff we suffer from in, in is not really diseases. It's really sort of wellness optimization of you know resource. We all have posterior cingulate. You want to be threat sensitive enough. You want to you know not be a Pollyanna walking through a dark alley. You also don't want to be sitting in the tub stressing out about tigers. You know you want to sort of yes. have that ability to be be appropriately stressed and then put it back down. So that's what neurofeedback and brain mapping give someone is agency to go look at your brain. Cool. Hey, I think your brain might you know be a little obsessive and be a little bit worried sometimes. And hey, wait, there's some delta next to your ear. Do you have some tinnitus? Did you have COVID? Um, for some inflammatory stuff. And suddenly you unpack a lot of suffering and people are like, wait a minute. Oh yeah, that stuff. So I sort of view brain mapping almost like when we first got into lipid panels 30, 40 years ago and went, ooh, cholesterol, uh -huh. ooh, triglycerides. Uh -huh. And you can sort of give people a sense of how things are operating. They can then change the system either through neurofeedback or other lifestyle hacks, see mm -hmm. it change, feel it change, go back to the data look that it's changed, trust that it's changed. And your relationship with your brain is very, very different when you iterate through this process after a while. Absolutely. There's my soapbox. Yeah. I love it, but it's so empowering and freeing to see that we can look at the brain this way. Mm. We can take action to support the outcome that we're looking for. As you said, some people might not need to shift a certain part if it's actually working for them, even yeah. if it's looking different on the brain map. And then the places that are not working for them, they can literally decide how, and this is leads into my next question, you know, how to actually make change in a way that's favorable for what they want as far as their outcome. So what an amazing opportunity. And instead of be feeling like we're stuck with this condition or situation where we don't really have any power over except for medication. Mm -hmm. Um I'd love to hear coming from my field of functional nutrition and wellness. I'm so curious with, you know, for the people listening and just in general, how can we em employ some of the most common health practices to support our brain? And we can break it down into a few different topics, but I mean, I'm thinking about food. I'm thinking about sleep. I'm thinking about circadian rhythm and even some spirituality practices, maybe meditation, yoga, various things like that. How, how can we work to improve our brain health with some of these big heavy hitter areas in the health and wellness realm? Thanks. I, I appreciate the question. So, you know, as a functional nutritionist, you sort of are doing this sleuthing process for folks to figure out the systems that they're engaging with both internally metabolically and externally in the food and help them navigate the right signals and cues and relationships with all these variables and all this behavior. That's what we're doing with the brain. We're doing functional neuroscience and those things you described about sleep and circadian and food and activity and mindfulness can fit into that in ways that, you know, neurofeedback can as well, but you're carrying around the equipment to do some of that without neurofeedback. So we do a lot of coaching and support of other healthy habits, you know, biohacking or functional neuroscience habits. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
to optimize the experience of neurofeedback clients, but we also recommend a lot of things in general that can make a large difference, even if you don't do the biofeedback process. So um, a lot of the, the, the foundational aspects of this, I consider to be around circadian rhythm. But if you take a few of the things about food, about activity, about sleep, and you kind of stack them all together, mm. have a, a, a practice that I, or a set of, a set of experiments. I, don't, I, I would say, don't call them rules because they might not work for you, but they probably will. But it can seem like a lot <laughs> to, uh, to take on a lot of things, a lot of transformations. So my, I encourage folks to experiment, try one or two things, see if it works, try something else, see if it works. Um, and I find that if you regulate your circadian rhythm through environmental cues, uh, including food and activity and sleep, then you will generally um, put a big foundation under a lot of resources that are not sleep. I mean, SMR, that rhythm I mentioned earlier, it's called uh, sensory motor, motor rhythm or low beta. Use it to hold still, to not be impulsive. You, it's also called sleep spindles by neurologists. It's used to maintain the quality of sleep. So sleep's a big deal. And it's a big thing in the brain that tends to stabilize attention and stress. If you do your sleep properly, not because you're have enough energy to not be stressed because literally the process of sleep changes the resources available for stress and attention because they overlap deep in the brain. This SMR frequency is involved with inhibitory tone controlling yourself essentially. So um, Dr. Hill's top three rules for circadian mm -hmm. are don't eat before bed, get up early and move before you eat. So to unpack that a little bit, I think folks should be fasting for two or three hours before bed if they're relatively healthy with insulin and more, mm -hmm. more hours if they're not. Um, okay. uh, insulin and cortisol will get in the way of growth hormone. So if there's a high insulin system, as you fall asleep, because you snack before bed, you suppress the growth hormone that you might release a few hours after you fall asleep. Most humans will get one big pulse of growth hormone and that's it especially if you're north of 30 or so, you don't get much more growth hormone uh, throughout the 24 hour cycle. One, one pulse after you fall into deep sleep and that's kind of it. Younger people get a little more throughout the day, but they, they get a huge pulse a couple hours after falling asleep. Um, but that's about 75% or 80% for a young person. It's all the growth hormone you'll get as a person who's not super young. And if you have any sh blood sugar that's high, i.e. insulin that's high, you'll prevent that growth hormone release. Just completely wow. shut it down, which means you skim the surface of sleep. Don't go into deep sleep, suppress your, your Delta or your dream less sleep, wake up without having rested fully. And that can get in the way. And also eating late at night is kind of a big problem because the circadian stuff, uh, one of the circadian cues, the brain, the body uses is a release of melatonin mm -hmm. as it gets later and the release of melatonin, uh, in the brain, uh, by the brain shuts down insulin release by the pancreas. So if you snack at the end of the night, you get, you get very high blood sugar. And yeah. so you prevent clearance of the residual insulin you have in your system. You also have high blood sugar, a lot of cortisol, a lot of stress. So you, so your body temperature is elevated. Your heart rate stays high throughout the night. You don't get deep sleep. You're, you're staging mm -hmm. out of deep sleep doesn't happen properly. So first rule fast before bed by a couple hours, maybe three or four. Second rule, get up early seven days a week. I don't care when you go to bed, listen for the sleep urge for going to bed. I don't care when it is but get up the same time. Even if it's only been a few hours of sleep, seven days a week, wow. pick a time that is within one hour of sunrise, no later, because the only light cues that are very strong for the circadian rhythm are the morning light cues that happen within one hour of, of sunrise. When the sun is low on the horizon, the light is a certain color and there's a 
the retina notices that color. There's a part of the brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. It's it's on top mm-hmm. of the chiasm. Mm-hmm. And its only real job is to notice the color of light. And it's sensitive to that morning light. That's it, basically. And it's, it's a master uh, reset of the all the body clocks because there's millions of clocks in the body, well, thousands. And the circadian rhythm will be cascadingly reset every morning by the SCN uh, because of the color of light in the morning. So fast before bed, get up early seven days a week and do some low intensity exercise. I don't want you doing high intensity. First thing in the morning, that the, the rise of body temperature, the rise of cortisol at four or five in the morning, whatever it is, that will squeeze your liver, release glycogen. And so you wake up with cortisol and glycogen in your system. That's one of the things that wakes you up. So if you rush to the gym and pound weights or hit the crazy hit workout or climb the mountain, you're calling for more glycogen. You're calling for more cortisol and you're, you're going to be resistant to cortisol and, and, and sugar if you call for it tons of it in the morning. So it's a very inefficient way to work out is hardcore first thing in the morning. And that can screw with your circadian rhythm. It can make your body mm-hmm. think much later in the day. So get up or, uh, uh, fast before bed, get up early, do low intensity exercise enough to perhaps trigger autophagy, 20 to 30 minutes, moderate exercise. You can talk over maybe 15, Yes. five sun salutations will take you 10 minutes. That's about the minimal viable practice I'd recommend. And then you can, you know, talk over it. You can walk, you, you can, you can warm the whole body up, et cetera. The idea here is to not, to, uh, to not move from the bed to the couch, the bed to the desk, the bed to the kitchen table is to move from the bed to the yoga mat or the dog walking park or whatever. Mm-hmm. And tell your body about the need to flux energy before it receives energy. And evolutionarily, this is a huge signal. Oh, no, nothing in the cave. Got to go out in the jungle and hunt first thing in the morning. The body's good at marshalling resources before it need before it receives energy. It's kind of relying on that signal. So that's before bed, get up early, low intensity exercise and bonus, move your high intensity exercise, your kettlebells, your weights, your whatever to between three and 7 PM. Cardiac output is lowest. Sorry. Cardiac output is highest. So it's nice and broad, big heart and cortisol is lowest. So if you do spike your cortisol through the, the hard workout, It'll simply spike briefly, mobilize fat, burn off the cortisol, go away. So it's not elevated later on. It's a very heard signal. So it's a, it's a much smaller amount of cortisol than you might have in the morning, but you'll feel it more. It's also why you, by the way, feel a cup of coffee in the afternoon way more than you do in the morning because right. absence of the cortisol in the afternoon, the coffee uh, drives it back up and you feel it. So if you partition these exercise and activity things nicely, there's other ways you can refine it. You can in the evening, not use overhead lights. You only use desk lights. That'll help a little mm-hmm. bit with light. You can do things like move to an intermittent fasting window of 16, eight, where you're only eating eight hours and you leave three, four hours in the day of fasting, a couple hours, first thing in the morning, that'll uh, prevent your insulin from remaining up and staying up. And doing an intermittent fasting window is more important if you're insulin resistant or overweight or have that, that extra energy flux I was mentioning where, where energy storing in places it really shouldn't be stored. Um, for folks who are wanting about diet, nutrition, and things, my rules of thumb for mm-hmm. carbohydrates, if you're really insulin sensitive and you're healthy and you're in nothing inflammatory, then I think you're, you can handle a, your, your liver can store about a gram per pound of body weight. And if you don't overfill it, you'll never spill out of that and you'll never go into your bloodstream, fatty liver, et cetera. So mm-hmm. if you do half your body weight in grams of carbs, that's about the keto level. You'll stay in ketosis or close to it all the time. And that's an easy number to think about. Okay, you have 180, okay, 90 grams of carbs. 
that's way over what keto people would say is plausible. But if you stay under 90 and you work out and don't overfill your system, you will actually stay in ketosis relatively easily, even eating mm-hmm. carbs day to day, as long as you eat enough protein. Most of the diet and nutrition stuff, I'm sure you have read the religion mm-hmm. much more careful than I have. Any diet works that is improving people's attention to um, their diet, essentially, even in any change almost works for a while. But the 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 thing from from my reading literature that seems to be consistent regardless of which diet you go after what seems to matter is the amount of protein so you can have yes. essentially isocaloric studies that look at the same you know heavily controlled things and if protein is controlled across studies it doesn't matter if it's high fat low fat high carb low carb if protein is the same that's the one thing that seems to matter and it matters a lot so yes. I'm a big fan of people going somewhat higher protein than most people do, especially as you get older, you can't absorb protein as well. Unless you have, you know, issues with it, with a lot of inflammation and growth, you know, pro-cancerous stuff, you don't want to trigger the mTOR signal. mTOR is like insulin, but for protein. mTOR gets triggered by, by fuel. We have, we have fuel sensors. Insulin is a fuel sensor for sugars and mTOR is a fuel sensor for protein. So if you have cancers and stuff and overgrowth, then you may want to do a protein, a low protein diet or something. But if you don't, then you probably want to spike mTOR appropriately for growth and then let it drop in periods of fasting for cleaning stuff up. And you can really mm-hmm. learn to cycle that just like you can your insulin, you know, spike it for your sugar, drop it when you're not having food. And that's really important. So um, I think if you go up in protein and, and a lot of um, a lot of these numbers aren't things that you should necessarily hit, it just depends on what the uh, goals are. And some of the criteria become much more important depending on what your goals are. Like if you're having seizures or have, you know, brain cancer or something or, or something major, you really should go into a much harder ketosis than if, than if you're yeah. trying to like reshape your body or something or drop some, you know, right. some, some stiff knees or something. But generally, if people are trying to make a big change and get into a keto protein sparing, whatever kind of diet for a while to make a big shift, there's a really easy set of numbers I often give out, which is go for a gram of protein per pound of body weight, or at least gold body weight, go mm-hmm. for between a half a gram and a quarter gram for fat. Okay. Too, little, too little fat will, will suppress your hormones, especially women. You'll get a hormone adaptation rapidly because you women adapt to stuff quickly. Um, but you know, I'm about 180. So I would say about 100, 180 grams of protein, which is really high as a high protein diet. And then half that you know, 45 to 90 for fat, you know, 45 will make my hormones plenty above 90. It's actually kind of high. I wouldn't even need 90 because I'm carrying some pudge. So I could just burn off what I'm carrying. <laughs> um, and then for carbs, that, that quarter of your body weight at 45 grams, that's the upper limit. I would say for carbs to avoid over, more than halfway filling your liver. And those three numbers will let you uh, basically control metabolism pretty effectively, especially some fasting window in there. And then that amount of protein, uh, will create, it's a strong mTOR signaling. So you'll build Mm -hmm. muscle, you'll build bone mass. If you keep your protein high, if you're up around like for me, 180 grams or something of protein, it's a lot of protein and has an insanely high amount of satiety per gram. Uh, yes. and, and it also tends to come with fat sources if you're eating animals. So you get mm-hmm. moderate fat and super high protein. People will find themselves after two or three days of eating this way, under eating calories pretty significantly without meaning to. And if you're eating enough protein and you're sparing your muscles, uh, from it being sort of catabolized, you're not going to lose any muscle mass. 
but it's a pretty effective way to cause a rapid reset of insulin sensitivity, to clean out all the glycogen in your liver, to drop any fatty uh, uh, liver or fatty muscles that have accumulated, to drop your triglycerides dramatically yeah. in your bloodstream, uh, raise your HDL and drop your LDL a little bit if you're lucky. So you can really do this. And then once you're, once you're carb uh, sensitive, once you're insulin sensitive, you're not you know, carrying around too much weight, you, you know, have a lot of inflammation, then I encourage folks to build back in carbs up to that, you know, about that half to a full gram if they want to have a carb rich lifestyle. You know, so for me, I'd have between 90 and 180 grams of carbs and I can have 180 grams of carbs and the next day be back in ketosis, which is shocking to me right. now. Because your body oh. learns that carb cycling. That's right. Muscle. And I also know, use one of these things a lot. This is a, uh, a biosense for my breath. It's an acetone meter. So I can measure if my body's doing downstream uh, ketone production, not using nice. blood, which is from diet, essentially. It's, that's the quick response. But breath is the outflow from all the enzymatic processes that are, that are being used to build up the ability to make ketones and burn ketones. So I know when I'm going off the rails with too much ice cream or whatever, too much bread, because my ketones in the morning are very low. I mean, you know, this morning they were uh, on the, on the acetometer, it was three, which on a blood meter would be 0.3. So it's light ketosis. Um, but if I had ice cream two or three nights in a row, I'd wake up, it'd be a zero or a one. I'd be, oh, oh no ketones for me, must be have high blood sugar. And yes. you, you can't make ketones in the presence of high insulin and in the presence right. of high sugar. So we can measure sugar with a finger stick. We can't really measure insulin. And you can have decent blood sugar because of decent habits, but have chronically high insulin because of old habits, if you aren't careful. So you have to kind of, right. without knowing what your insulin is, you're only, it's only half the picture for blood sugar. So I figured out a while ago that if you measure ketones in the breath, you know your insulin's low if you can make ketones. So it's a, it's a nice flag for that. And I learned for myself that after some aggressive fasting and low carb, whatever else, I was sensitive enough to now the sort of metabolic environment and, and uh, fuel different, different fuel types I was giving myself that I became metabolically flexible. Sort of the, the holy grail of, of uh, athletes is to eat whatever mm -hmm. source of fuel comes in, turn it into the appropriate tissue, partition it wherever you need to, and then not have it work against your metabolic environment. So um, I think people who are trying to make big changes can use those numbers. I think everyone else who's uh, you may have to tune them for athletic performance. Like you're not going to build the most muscle or have the most explosive environment, uh, explosive performance. If you have super low carb, um, but it doesn't mean you can't have amazing performance, but if you're like a long distance runner, uh, no problem doing, doing low carb, but if you're trying to like, you know, do the most, the most hypertrophy, the most muscle building, cause you're a power lift or something, you're just not going to do your best under low carb. Um, and then there's reasons to build back in carbohydrates. And I'm not an anti-keto at all, and I'm not pro-carb at all, but I will tell people that when I suggest bringing carbs back in, it's usually fruit sources. Just one more quick thing on that. I'd love to know when we're talking, we kind of talked about the macronutrients, which clearly there are some pretty heavy hitters according to your, your um, strategies. Tell me, is there any really important micronutrients that you recommend or that you feel like are kind of up at the top of your list for including yeah. in one's regimen? I mean, there are. Um, often I'm helping people figure out an initial strategy to make an acute change. And I sort of 
encourage folks to do about six weeks of aggressive keto and don't worry about vegetables. Don't worry about fiber. Um, really, really just worry about dropping those carbs and, and getting the protein up high enough, learning how to enjoy it, digest it, eat it, et cetera. And I think it takes about three weeks for people that are really insulin resistant to get into good ketone generation. And then it can take another three weeks to sort of like have all that repair the brain, heal some inflammation and get really into deep uh, places. And then around six weeks in, people are probably getting a little bit depleted in micronutrients, if not sooner. So if you're chronically keto or whatever, then you definitely have to be, be supplementing a little bit. Um, often electrolytes are the, the big thing that matters because of mm -hmm. course, glycogen is stored in the liver and other places. Uh, every gram of carb you store is glycogen takes three grams of water. So as your body drops hundred grams, 200 grams, you know, uh, uh, the average person can store three to 400 grams total, 500 grams of carbs between liver muscles and other, another, uh, other storage area. And so you, as you're dropping, let's say just for the math, 500 grams of carbs out of your system, that's another 1500 grams of water. And with that water comes magnesium and sodium and the body will dump huge amounts of magnesium or sodium to balance the other one. So suddenly you're actually getting dehydrated, not realizing it, losing lots of water weight. It's why you actually lose five pounds in the first week of keto, by the way, it's nothing to do with your glycogen. It's all the water that goes that mm -hmm. bleeding, but people get the keto flu and achy and headachy and low energy and dizzy and, you know, it's all electrolytes. So most of the keto flu stuff can be avoided with just good electrolyte management. Mm -hmm. And then if you're doing a carnivore style diet and you are eating appropriately, so to speak, not just in a, in a rigid, uh, minimal food way, then you can really build a lot of the nutrients you need in through the diet. You know, if you have uh, organ meats once a week, you shouldn't have like liver every day because you'll get a hyper vitamin A and some other stuff will happen. That was just kind of untoward. But if you have liver or heart or something once a week or get your butcher to, you know, grind in a liver in with your hamburger 10% or something, um, that's enough to cover an awful lot. I sort of think liver is the number one micronutrient in the, in the world, you know, above uh, any vegetable source. Um, and then if you include uh, sea life, you know, uh, sea fish, shellfish, fish, whatever, you're getting secondary fats and other micronutrients. Um, beyond that, I think that there are some supplements that are perhaps important to add in supplemental form, especially in, in this day and age. I, I like vitamin D supplemental. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm a big fan of going kind of high in the dosage during our pandemic days here. I think, you know, we can take 10,000 yeah. perhaps every morning. Wow. I would suggest only in the morning for circadian reasons, mm -hmm. but a lot of people can take, you know, five or 10,000 IUs, no problem. Uh, as long as other nutrients are coming in, you won't cause any issues. And it takes about six months of super high levels of vitamin D before it causes any trouble anyways. And the, the, the literature on vitamin D suggests you have to take an insane amount, like 50, 100,000 IUs even. Um, so acute dosing of vitamin D is not the worst idea. And it seems to be heavily involved with immune modification, uh, immune system management. Um, zinc these days also seems to be heavily important. Uh, zinc's good for immune, good for men's hormone as well, women's hormone as well. But zinc also is highly, the zinc levels in the system, in the body, highly correlated with the ciliary beat rate of the deep uh, fibers in the lungs. So if you have good zinc levels, your lungs clear out stuff you breathe in much faster, like bacteria and viruses. If you have low zinc levels, you have lazy cilia that can't clear out of the mucus the viruses that land in your respiratory system. Well, so, that would make sense with why zinc will shorten the duration of any 
you know, yeah. illness yeah. Um, related to the common cold or flu yeah. for yeah. sure. And, and I'm sure so, so zinc, yeah, exactly. Um, it it uh, does seem to, vitamin D levels and zinc levels seem to inversely correlate with the disease, disease severity, uh, which is nice. Um, so zinc and vitamin D, I think are important. Um, beyond that, I think it's a little particular, depends on your diet. I think if you're not getting lots of good omega-3 sources, especially if you're like plant-based or something, then you got to be supplementing omega-3s, maybe algae forms of DHA mm -hmm. and EPA, mm -hmm. EPA or something if you're plant-based. Mm -hmm. But if you're animal-based and you're eating meat, then you're getting and you're eating grass-fed uh, and fish and other forms of good quality meat, then you're getting plenty of omega-3s. If you're doing a sort of budget keto thing and you're and all your all your meat is like commercially farmed and you're in your you know Costco's favorite customer kind of thing. And some people do that. I still think that's better than eating like a vegan with tons of tons of uh, engineered carbs off the shelf. I'm a, I'm not a fan of the engineered carbs, the engineered foods that 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 some people mm -hmm. go and when they go to no meat, they 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 dive into the starch pool of engineered foods. I think it's very dangerous. Um, highly processed. Highly processed. Yeah, exactly. Um, if folks are dropping bread or even meat out of your diet, that's not a big deal from my perspective. I think there's reasons to do it and, and often valid ones, but don't replace it with anything. Don't replace bread with fake bread. Don't replace meat with fake meat. Just don't eat it. Don't, you know, right. shift your mindset because fake bread is horrible for you. Fake meat is even worse. So, and hallelujah. So I think that we have to have our relationship with macros, with food. And just like, I mean, I, you know, check my Instagram. I made some bread yesterday and put hamburgers on. I eat, you know, carbs sometimes, but I think that we can get a little bit dysregulated with these things and we can be more stimulus driven. And our relationship with food is nuanced, complicated. It's reward. It's got cultural significance. It has, it's caretaking, it's healing. It's enjoyable. And there's many reasons we social, many reasons we eat, but many of us in the West are being driven by highly palatable, highly processed food. Absolutely. And I would rather people jump, drop back to simple diets that are low ingredient foods, steak or two, chicken breast, some fish, some shrimp, some shellfish, uh, you know, poultry, responsibly farmed meat, grass fed, everything grass fed if you can to raise the omega-3 profile. But again, to say it again, I'd rather you eat the cheap ass meat out of Walmart or Costco, whatever, than eat the engineered non-meat foods. Yeah. Um, just for instance. a great distinction. I think it's confusing for people. So thank you for making that. So I have a question. When one of my kids um, struggled with ADHD when he was young, and we did a lot of biofeedback. And then I think I mentioned to you that I have a friend, Kurt Smith, who was one of the original developers of the um, actual video game, Journey to the Wild Divine, which incorporated biofeedback. And I remember you know, the launch party and when that came out and it was a very popular sure. modality that made its way into some really great, you know, Deepak Chopra promoted it, things like that. How do you feel about that? And what is the difference between biofeedback and neurofeedback? Just for the people listening, I think biofeedback might be a term that more people are familiar with. Sure. So, so all neurofeedback is a form of biofeedback, but not all biofeedback is in the brain, basically. So okay. this peripheral biofeedback, what we often mean when we say biofeedback, it means to stop below the neck. Um, central biofeedback or things where you're training stuff mm -hmm. inside bone is neurofeedback. Central is inside bone. 
the central nervous system is always in, in the bones and peripheral nervous systems outside of the bones. So central biofeedback or neurofeedback, peripheral biofeedback. Um, Wild Divine, uh, both the, the initial journey one, some of their secondary games um, are peripheral biofeedback and they use hand sensors, which I believe are, um, I, I've used it, I forget exactly. I think they're GSR, yeah. skin response and temp both. And you get a little heart, heart read in there as well. So they're kind of doing multimodality peripheral systems. And the biggest difference between peripheral biofeedback and central is peripherals voluntary and central's involuntary. You can't feel your brain waves. You can't feel your blood flow in your brain. So if you train it, it's getting trained, but galvanic skin response, tension in your body, even the heart rate and breathing, those are under your control. These days, people are super into heart rate variability biofeedback, which while divine has, I think part of what they're doing is, is HRV. And you put sensors on and you watch the thing on the screen and you kind of get a sense of what's happening internally. And after a while, after practicing with the game for many, mm -hmm. many hours, you then get control over the physiology that's being measured, your you know, skin conductance, your temperature, your heart rate, whatever. You get voluntary control over it. That's called skill transfer. And in peripheral biofeedback, you sort of practice it until you have skill transfer, and then you have access to a new skill. And if you lose access to it, go back and practice it, get the skill back. But that sort of means you may have to have your journey to the wild divine or your heart math, HRV or whatever available if you have a phenomena that responds to it every so often you go back and tune up that resource again so you can drop into the zone when you're stressed out in traffic without reaching for your you know little finger sensor or whatever um neurofeedback changes the brain's resources so as you get changed you get changed at the end of a three or four month process of doing neurofeedback your anterior cingulate posterior cingulate are at rest a different amount of activation and that's a relatively permanent thing so you don't have to keep practicing it so that really goes back to the cat in the window and yeah. the first experiment we talked about with the cats that didn't have that same original response as the other cats because That's right. they the, had the brains changed were their brain. The brains were right. changed and the brain was sort of always practicing a little more SMR from, from then on because we use SMR all the time to sit still and to notice. Mm -hmm. So got once it. Dr. Sturm got their SMR to rise a little bit chronically, the brain went, okay, I'll hang out here. This is a good amount of SMR. I like this. And those cats were Amazing. extra still cats. Um, the same way that someone might have their ADHD uh, be sort of the, the literature on ADHD and, and long-term effects is pretty robust. There's studies at uh, six months, 12 months, five years, and 10 years that shows good long lasting results. Um, yeah. And for seizures, there's good studies up to about a year. That's about how long people are usually followed after their seizures go away. Um, and other stuff has good long lasting studies, but those are the most robust. And, and yeah, uh, once your brain, uh, again, if you're training up a brain wave, it's sort of involuntary and you feel the shift the next day and you're like, oh yeah, yeah, I like that, more of that. Train it again and it built up a bit more. And so over time you sort of burgeon resources and go back to your data sets to see if they're changing and see if they track what you're feeling. And when you can kind of say, oh yeah, I've made a couple standard deviations in the bell curve of change and I feel really different and done 30, 40 sessions. Well, now that's your new brain. Have fun. Amazing. So it's sustainable and it's long lasting. For, for things your brain is doing every day, yeah. Sleep, stress, and attention, speed of processing, resisting seizures, resisting migraines. It's very long lasting for most of that stuff, yeah. yeah. That's amazing. Wow. Well, I have one final question for you, which I'd love to ask at the end of my podcasts. And I have a feeling that this question will also circle back to many of the things we already talked about, but what does it mean to be satiated to you? Oh, so 
if you think about how human brains take in stimuli, we find things rewarding, right? Things that are exciting, things that are dynamic, sexy, yummy things. That's a dopamine response when things are yummy or exciting. And when you feel deeply at peace and calm and comfortable, that's a GABA heavy state in the brain. Mm. brain the brain yes. balances GABA and glutamate. Um, those are the only two universally calming and activating neurotransmitters, GABA and glutamate. And they're almost the same thing chemically, but they're very, very like balanced and tight, tight relationship. If your GABA goes up too much, you pass out. If your glutamate goes up too much, you have seizures. This is why alcohol makes you pass out and chronic alcohol withdrawal gives you seizures because the relationship is wow. thrown. Yeah. Okay. Um, you can take an alcoholic who's deeply burnt out, shaky, anxious, dry, you know, sober. And a lot of the, the, the nature of having very poor GABA tone is not being comfortable internally. Your environment feels very uncomfortable. Your emotions, your thoughts, they feel very uncomfortable. That's why alcohol mm -hmm. is insidious because it mm -hmm. makes you feel calm and warm and satisfied, satiated, as long as you aren't craving the dopamine hit. So GABA and, and, and dopamine together, if you can educate them. So we can take someone who's shaky and burnt, and burnt out with no GABA tone and lots of glutamate and doesn't feel comfortable in their environment and they're craving, they're reaching, they're, they're not satisfied, not satiated. And alcohol or other soothers are often a thing that's then sought after. You can take someone's brain and retrain the GABA up in a few weeks. And now they can drop into feeling peaceful, satisfied, calm, okay with their difficult stuff at will. And if they have ADHD, they're seeking, seeking, seeking novelty and you can train down the theta and suddenly they find whatever they want to look at interesting. So you can be somebody who's not grasping and reaching out from yourself for the drug, the stimulus, if it's dopamine or GABA, and you can educate those processes through neurofeedback, through meditation, through lifestyle changes, get control over those two systems, not by changing the absolute level in any meaningful way, but by regulating all the other stuff that listens for the GABA and the dopamine, all the different circuits that use them, tuning them in relationship to other circuits is really where it's at. And now you can find yourself satisfied even in uh, difficult times. You know, the, the uh, perspective on suffering is often not, it's not what's happening that's the suffering. It's how you react to it. It's how you perceive it. Absolutely. So Absolutely. you can bring your GABA tone up reliably and you can find things interesting that you want to find interesting, then you should be satiated and have good relationships with your dopamine and your GABA. I love it. I love asking this question because I talk about so many different things on the podcast and I'm really glad that you turned it back to the neurotransmitters since that's what we've been talking about. And GABA is something that I spend a lot of time talking about and thinking about and using in my own life. So, and my practice. So perfect. Well, it is an absolute pleasure to host you and you're such a wealth of knowledge and I could go on and on with many more questions. Um, but I know that I'll be sending you a lot of referrals. So that's good. And I just feel so thankful that we could spend some time together today chatting. Well, I'd love to take any referrals. All your listeners get a discount on our brain mapping as well. So we'll- Oh, great. On and uh, we also can do neurofeedback anywhere in the world. We do remote neurofeedback. So come Amazing. We'll, we'll Amazing. Your brain up. Well, we'll put the discount um, code in the show notes and how to find you and all of the amazing work you're doing. So thank you so much for being here today on the show. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
It is such an honor to spend time with you here on Satiate. And may this conversation be of benefit. From my heart to yours, I wish you health and happiness for the coming season. And may we meet again here very soon. Take good care.